0: Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray to our God. Heavenly Father, we need your help. In this text, Jesus takes aim at things that are close to our hearts. So close that we might resist. And we might even look past what you are saying here. Help us to listen. Help us to be ready to hear from you, even if you have words that confront us today. And we ask that you would give us a willingness to be changed by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What are the great dangers of our age for, the, for Christians? If I was to go around and ask you to sit down and, and make a list, what are the dangers for Christians today? What would your list look like? Um, it's possible that your list is pretty high level. It's possible that your list of things that you think are threats to Christians or to the church are, are very big issues, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you would say the secular culture out there with their rejection of God and their, and their disinterest in spiritual things is a threat to Christians, um, if you're like me, if, you're, if you have the impulses, the inclinations that I have, then maybe maybe you think bigger. Maybe you think political and cultural. Maybe you say, look, social media is tearing us apart. It's pushing us into our, our corners. It's keeping us from talking to people that we ought to be speaking with face to face. Maybe we might say it's the news media, right? They're, they're skewing everything that happens. How can we have knowledge if we can't trust what these people say? Maybe, though... We don't get so high level. Maybe we think more boots on the ground. Maybe we think more personal. Uh, maybe we even would be self-critical. Maybe we would say, look, our, our own sin is a great, is a great danger. Right? We'd, we'd be right, of course. But sometimes when we point the finger at ourselves, we can be fairly vague about it. Uh, we can sometimes say, well, you know, my own sin is a great threat to my soul. But are we afraid to get specific? Sometimes I think we're afraid to get specific because if we get specific, then we will see the specific ways in which we actually have to change. Uh, Maybe you do get specific. Maybe you start listing besetting sins in your own life, though. Maybe you say, you know, I have this or that besetting sin, and I know that if God doesn't do something, that I will find myself in deep spiritual danger because of this. Maybe you would do that. And if you were to make a list even of those besetting sins, and and, and maybe even if I were to ask you to get so personal that you would list those things for me, I wonder if I were to look at any of your lists at all, whether the thing that tempts you or whether the thing you would ever write down is the sin of worldliness. How many of us actually reflect very much on that specific sin? Well, for Jesus, when he's talking to people that he loves... When Jesus is talking to people that he cares about, he identifies a very serious danger to them. It is the danger of becoming like the world and the danger of loving the world, right? Loving things, loving stuff, loving, loving these things. Jesus says, you may think that it's innocent, but it is as dangerous as it gets. Are you concerned about yourself and are you concerned about the sin of worldliness? Materialism, uh, loving Uh, things—you'd better be. We should be. Uh, We are so alert to the obvious sins. You know, we we see how many Christians seem to have taken, been taken by what we think of as the obvious sins of the day. Have they been compromised by things that we've managed to avoid, maybe? But I would say that worldliness is a problem that is clear. It is present it is in our homes, it is a part of how we think, it is a part of how we live, so much that we barely bat an eye at it, and we may have trouble even identifying it in our own lives. Are you concerned about worldliness? Not the worldliness of the world, the worldliness of you. When I talk about worldliness this morning, I'm working with a definition I Uh, I looked for a good definition, or at least somebody who would uh, define it for me, and maybe I don't have enough commentaries, but I decided to give my own definition. Uh, I have been told over and over again by my book manager that I have plenty of books, but um, maybe I didn't open the right one. But here's my definition of worldliness. Worldliness is the attachment of the heart to things in the world and the approval of the world. So the things of the world and the approval of the world, those two things. It's the attachment of the heart, right? It's not just the way we live, but it's what we want, what we cling to, what we live for, right? The person who is worldly loves stuff, but they also love the world's approval. They don't want to just have what the world has. They want to belong to it. They want to be part of it. See, worldliness is not just about wanting stuff only. It's about the fact that we want the world to like us. We we see people getting shouted down because they're Christians and because they have orthodox views on what the Bible says. And, And we see that happen to them and we're very tempted to say, you know, I don't want that to be me. I don't want to go through that. Maybe if I keep my head down. Or maybe we don't even decide just to keep our head down and be quiet, but we think, but what if I actually just gave in and thought like the world, right? Maybe God is wrong. Maybe maybe there's no such thing as sexual sin at all. Maybe Maybe anything people really want to do is okay, right? That's the moment we live in where we want to invent a world where there is no such thing as sexual sin. You know, if you say that, you're going to make a lot of friends with the world and you're unlikely to get shouted down. And so you see, when we become worldly, what we do is we rationalize and we think like, the world thinks we're we're tempted to make peace with the world so that those out there will like us. And so, when worldliness creeps in, we find ourselves whispering the good news of the gospel instead of speaking it loudly and speaking it gladly. Uh, we find ourselves afraid to say what God says at times because we're bashful and, and we implicitly have started to believe the world's lies about God's law. Either we start to believe the lie, or we fear the consequences of the truth and. And that fear, that hesitation, if you see it in yourself, those are all symptoms that worldliness has indeed encroached on us. And we are being tempted by it, much like the proverbial frog that's being boiled in the kettle. You know, the frog isn't boiled in the kettle by throwing him into a boiling kettle. He jumps right back out again. What does he do instead? You, you boil the frog by turning the heat up just enough that he doesn't notice what's going on. And I think that worldliness has encroached on our lives in much the same way. Now, Jesus is mostly addressing the first part of what I've just said today, the attachment to things, the attachment to the things of the world. But, but keep in mind that you may not love things and you can still be worldly because if you want the world to love you, if you jump on each issue that society and culture tells you is important, but you're slow to talk about the things that God says are important, Please understand, you are experiencing the encroaching symptoms of worldliness in your own heart and in your own life too, and Jesus cares about that. See, here Jesus is. He is in the first century, and he's talking to these people who are potentially going to be taken by things, being t- t- taken by the idea of loving things, of being materialistic, of, of keeping treasures on earth. He's doing this in the first century. Imagine how much more dangerous it is for us in a consumeristic culture where every web page, every billboard, every advertisement is screaming at us: "You need this. This will this will complete you. Uh, buy this thing. Visit this website, and everything you want is going to come true. Take this. You'll be happy. Use this. You'll be desirable. Buy this. You'll make friends." We're surrounded by this messaging. The heart has always cried out for these things, even in the first century. But it is surgically injected into our veins in the 21st century, right? We, it, 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 I don't know if you feel like this, but it feels like we can't escape it. Um, I do my very best. What do I do? I turn off ad blocking on my computers. I don't want to see the ads. I subscribe to streaming services that don't have commercials. I pay the extra $10 a month so I don't have to see ads on YouTube. And then, what do I, and then what happens, though? You still can't avoid the messaging because you can't escape. Uh, we are surrounded by this constant, dangerous temptation to love the world and love the things in the world. I would argue that the single biggest competitor to Christianity in the world today is not some other religion. It's not some other religion. The biggest competitor to Christianity is materialism and the lure of worldliness. People are leaving the church, and they're not leaving it for another religion. They're just leaving it for their own happiness, their own pursuits, their own idea of life. Generally speaking, they're not leaving Christianity for some other world religion. Now, let me just assume some things about you. Let's say, generally speaking, this is who I'm talking to today. You're not tempted by... A lot of things, you know, you hear about the vices of the world, you hear the worst news stories about people, and you think, wow, I can't believe people out there are living like that. They're living outrageously sinful lifestyles. You know there are murderers, you know there are thieves, you know there are sexual sinners out there. Maybe you don't think of yourself as being tempted by those things. Now, I might question your perception of that, but I am sure of one thing, you are still tempted by worldliness. Jesus is going to speak to this temptation today, but he's also going to help us have the right perspective so that we know what we're supposed to live for and we know how to live for it. And so that we don't make things an idol in the process. And so let's take what Jesus says here in this danger that he addresses and let's look at it in three parts. First of all, his teaching about treasures on earth, right? What we shouldn't do. Second, his, he's pressing us toward treasures in heaven. In other words, the positive vision of life that he has for us. And then third, his encouragement where he presses us toward dedication and, and towards single-mindedness. So, so our three parts are treasures on earth, treasures in heaven, and dedication uh, are three points this morning. Even right now, some of you are thinking you could have done better on the third point. But... <laughs> Is just my, this is just my running joke that I just can never name my three points well. Um, but it's all from Jesus. So whether or not we get the points right, hopefully the content's there, right? Um, first, Jesus speaks to us about treasures on earth. It's, it's a word of warning. He speaks negatively first. That's, that's how he launches out on this one. He, here's what he says, here's what not to do. Here's what not to live for. He says, do not lay up for yourselves, Treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Um, you notice that he's talking about your treasures. Your treasures, right? Everyone has some treasure, some thing that is the main object, the main organizing principle of their life, the thing that they live for, the thing that they love. Jesus knows that human beings were made to be like this. He knows we're like this. He says there is something in your life that if, that if God took it away, it would be like you lost everything. Jesus knows we all have treasure. He knows we all have things that we love. But he not only warns us about living for things, but in verse 21, he gives the reason why treasures on earth are dangerous. So he gives us this principle that explains the danger. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here is, here's the idea, here's the argument, here's why things are so dangerous. Because he's talking about the attachment and the motivation of the heart. He's talking about what we are driven by, and he's talking about what we are driven towards. He is not telling us that we shouldn't go about our daily lives. He's not saying that we can't have a profitable business um, Scripture is filled with individuals who have profitable businesses, who work hard, who enjoy the labor of their hands. Uh, Jesus uses illustrations that often involve hardworking individuals who build up enterprises, who build their business into something that's bigger. And and he always commends them as wise and understanding and shrewd. And and so today's passage is not a blanket denial of, of employment or work or even having things. Jesus is not condemning that. Jesus's point is that we are to live in this world without being worldly. See, worldliness is particularly insidious because it feels so natural and it feels so excusable until it isn't, right? And, and, and it comes upon us easily without us even seeing it coming. That's why I made the reference to the frog being boiled slowly in the pot because maybe you need the heat on, but you don't want it to be boiling. See, we all know that we have to work right? We, we all have to labor. Paul says, if a man will not work, then he will not eat. He says, if a man does not pro- provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. We have these biblical principles that remind us of the importance of working and earning a living. And when we work, what do we do? We receive money in exchange. We work heartily as unto the Lord, is what the scripture says. And so we do that, right? Uh, we work. We, nothing feels more natural than working hard and bringing home a paycheck and then using that paycheck to take care of our families, make the rent payment, pay our utility bills, putting gas in our car if we have one, uh, buying groceries, right? All of these are things that, that we do in our daily life, and we need funds to be able to accomplish that. Uh, life is difficult. Uh, cars break down. Uh, bank accounts drain especially if you just bought gas, right? Food, food costs rise, more kids are born, uh, costs go up. So what do we do? We work harder, maybe we work some extra hours uh, or we get tired of the car breaking down. And so we buy a newer one so we don't have to fix it, fix it so often, right? And, and suddenly you, you find that life doing perfectly legitimate things with legitimate possessions becomes a cycle of work and provision and maintenance, now here's what I'm getting at. <laughs> that routine, that that cycle, it can become something that we begin to serve so much that we forget that the things in our life are meant to serve us. We are not meant to serve them. So my, my point here is that this is what makes worldliness and materialism so tempting and so easy. Its foot is in the door. If you have a job or if you need money, then somehow it is a part of your life. There's a very natural root here. Uh, Work and provide. Who's going to argue with that? But see, that good and natural thing, it becomes twisted, right? All of sin is a twisting and a perverting of righteous and good things into something that becomes unrecognizable eventually, right? It starts as a gift. It starts as a blessing. It starts from a place that God commands us to live in. He says provide. He says be responsible for yourself and take care of your family. But that can easily morph into an idol that we don't see coming until it is too late. It can become our master very easily. And Jesus is warning us. He's saying worldliness is, is deadly. He says, you do not want these things. You do not want this stuff to become your master they can be a cruel master, and they will disappoint you in the end. If you think back to the series we were doing on First Timothy, if you remember at one point, Paul is dealing with people who are ascetics. We talked about ascetics, and, and if you were here, you might remember that. But the ascetics are people who say, look, things are an obstacle to God. Things keep us from God. Possessions keep us from God. And so we should deny ourselves. We should deny ourselves food. We should deny ourselves even marriage, they say. They say you have to deny yourself, you have to get rid of things, you have to deny your body, you have to break down the body so that the soul can flourish. And here we have the opposite danger, right? The, the danger here is not asceticism, the danger is indulgence, the danger is loving things. It's, it's the other direction that the pendulum can swing. You know, maybe, maybe we talk down on ascetics. I certainly do. I like food, you know? Uh, I talk down on ascetics, but it's easy and it's possible for us to, to say, look, they are so misguided. All of these things are gifts from God. They're to be enjoyed and we'd be right. But when we correct the ascetics, do we acknowledge the element of truth in their practice? Do we recognize the reality? Say what you will, but they see the danger of things. They see that these things can become attachments for us, we can overcorrect, we can deny the goodness of the created world as a gift, but we can, also, uh, we can also love the things of this world. And Jesus says, if you organize your life around gaining things, the danger is that, you, that because you worked for them, your heart becomes fixed on them. He says, wherever you're, he says, wherever you're investing, wherever you're piling up your work, that is the place that you are going to get attached to and you're going to live for and you're going to yearn for. And he piles on the reasons, right? He says, not only can you become attached to them, he says, you can make idols of them. He says, they're not even worth trying to grab hold of in the first place. Why? He gives three reasons why they're not worth grabbing onto. First, he says, they can be destroyed by by moths. Um, He's talking about clothing here. We don't usually think of first century people as being stylish or being concerned with clothing. We just think of them as, well, they just draped a tablecloth over themselves and went on the go, right? I mean, that's how... uh, When I was a kid, I used to be in the Passion Play, and they didn't even give us uniforms or costumes or whatever. They just said, find a blanket and drape it around you. Um, I was like, I think you need more than that. But, uh, But we think of the first century as not being a very stylish place. That's actually not the case. Uh, I didn't actually know this until I started researching it because I wanted to think more about this point of moth and why are they concerned about moths eating their clothes. Here's the thing. In the first century, there was a such thing as expensive clothes. There was a such thing as expensive dyes. There was a such thing as ways of showing off where, the way you dress, right? Um, if you, it, Dyes were hard to come by, especially dark dyes, the sort of dyes that you really can only find by deep, diving deep into the ocean, if you could wear clothing that could only be colored by ink taken from a creature in the sea, you were a next level fancy person, right? <laughs> um, clothing was actually a very big deal. It was hard to produce. It was valuable. And so it usually needed to be well made and it was meant to last. And so here's what people would do. People would actually hand their clothing down to their children as an inheritance, um, uh, I bought a bag years ago, like eight years ago, a, a, a nice leather bag, and the slogan for the company was, your children will fight f- fight over it when you die. <laughs> I thought, well, I want to buy a bag that has that slogan. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, I bought that bag and it was a big deal because I thought hopefully I never have to buy another, another uh, briefcase again. But people thought that way about their clothing in the first century. They said, I hope my children fight over it when I die. That was the slogan probably from somebody, right? Here's what wealthy people would do. They'd take their clothing, they'd hide it away, they'd they'd secure it. Uh, Even in the first century, clothing was a big deal. How we look has always been something that human beings have cared about. Um, Jesus says you can hide them, but even the moths can still get to them, right? Really, though, the problem is they, they... Just like everything else, they just don't last. Even clothing doesn't last. Um, Jesus speaks second of the danger that that rust poses as well. He says, look, he's talking about precious metal here. He's saying that rust can destroy these things that you care about too. Uh, People would bury their wealth under the floor. They would bury it in the ground. And yet here's the reality. The ground can't stop time from taking its toll and eventually destroying even those things that we thought were indestructible. Maybe you have things in your life. You think, well, I might lose everything else, but I still have this thing. And Jesus says, think of the sturdiest, most stable thing that you have, and you can still lose that. He says it's not worth investing in this either. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your money. Third, he talks about thieves breaking in and and stealing. He says "Those, those same precious metals that can be destroyed by time, Even if you figured out a way to prevent them being destroyed by time, they can still be taken by thieves, right? Even if it isn't a meal, even if it isn't clothing, someone can take it. He says it's all of this stuff that we are so tempted by is a house of cards. It's so vulnerable. It's easily lost. That's why he says it is not worth investing in these treasures on earth because something can happen to them. They're not secure Um, you remember in in, in the movie Castaway where Tom Hanks gets really attached to that volleyball? And it's Wilson, right? And he's got a face. And and Wilson, the volleyball, gets carried away on the tide. And Tom Hanks is, is crushed by Wilson's departure. And then what does he do? He starts crying, you know? And at first in the movie, you kind of start laughing. And then by the end, he's still crying. And maybe you're crying too. I'm just saying maybe you know it's wilson wilson and as viewers you know we're 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 partly laughing and we're partly crying because it's so absurd right this this it's so ridiculous to us in a sense this ball is drifting away but it's the last thing he's got right it's the last thing he's got so what is he doing with the last thing he's got he's clinging to it desperately and if we become attached to things when they're then when they're lost it will be like we have lost a part of ourselves it will be like we've lost an arm or lost a loved one, right? Or like we've lost our very selves. And these things are not meant to be like that. They're not meant to function that way. They're supposed to be passing and transitory because they don't last. They're not designed to last. They are vulnerable. They turn to dust. They can be carried out to sea. All of it. So Jesus is, is not telling us we can't have things, but he is warning us of what John Stock calls the materialism which tethers our hearts to the earth the materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. Part of obeying Jesus' whole message here today is recognizing this danger and calling it what it is. It is worldliness. Jesus is challenging us to have things without grasping at them, right? H- having a home without idolizing it, uh, having, having a car perhaps without living for it, um, having these things, all of which we could and would walk out on in 20 seconds flat if we had to. Holding them loosely. Seeing them as useful, but not seeing them as our masters. Now here's the interesting part of this. Remember what Jesus does here. He assumes that we have treasures. He assumes we do. He assumes that we all have something that our life will be about. So, so, so the solution to avoiding worldliness is not to hate our things or to despise material things. Um, it it is something else. It's something better. It's, it's having a master who is worthy of our worship and loving him more than these having a true master, because we'll have a master one way or another. The question is, will it be a cruel master or will it be a good master? Someone who's worthy of serving somebody that we can't lose. The point here is we will worship one way or another. We will inevitably have treasure that we live for treasure that we invest in. Will it be the right kind of treasure? That's where Jesus takes us to next in the second point. See, the second point this morning is treasure in heaven. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the alternative, right? This is is the antidote. Living for a treasure that is worth our devotion. So this is where Jesus is pushing us. He's pushing us away from things as the center of our lives and toward those eternal matters that can't be lost. You know, if you start asking the question, what are those eternal things, right? Well, think about what they would be they would be things that you can't put your hands on necessarily Uh, by nature he's talking about spiritual blessings if it's something you could touch in this world then it's something that he's not talking about because moth and rust can destroy it so he's talking about spiritual things that are heavenly in character (coughs) and these are things that by the way we have a taste of now things that we already get to enjoy, things that we already have. If you have set your heart on Jesus Christ, then these are things that you already know in some way, in some measure, right? The things that last, the things that matter, things that we have a taste of that we wait to enjoy fully. Let me mention some things. Let me mention some treasures in heaven. Uh, Being pardoned by God. Experiencing answered prayer. Having our names written in heaven, enjoying the Father's love, knowing that we have a crown of righteousness, having mansions in heaven, having Jesus' own peace that he gives to us, the joy of Christ, the presence of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the victory that Jesus won, the indwelling of the spirit of Christ. I'm just getting started here. This is just a beginner list. Right? And you could sit there and you could add to that. You could add to this list. It's not exhaustive at all, but but maybe it gets your gears turning. maybe it gets your own imagination running as well. These are all the things that are worth living for that can't be taken. right? These are just scratching the surface. that's that's all I'm doing here. All of these things are gifts from God that, that we know in part. We know them right now, but but one day we're going to fully enjoy them. We're going to fully and eternally, delight in these things and and jesus is saying i have something i have something worth living for i have something to aim for i have something to give you purpose and organize your life around something you can't lose and that can't degrade or be stolen jesus says i have something better he's giving us the picture here of of a spiritually minded person who lives for god somebody who lives with pleasing christ as the sinner uh, of his or her motivations. Uh, when I was looking at how different different commentators dealt with this passage, I found something wonderful in William Hendrickson. He was talking about he's through his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, and he in his commentary on this section just offers this reflection on the rust proofness, the moth proofness, the burglar proofness of heavenly treasure, and and here is what he says. Just listen to this. He says, scripture throughout tells us about a faithfulness that will never be removed. A life that will never end. A spring of water that will never cease to bubble up within the one who drinks it. A gift that will never be lost. A hand out of which the good shepherd's sheep will never be snatched. A chain that will never be broken. A love from which we will never be separated. A calling that will never be revoked a foundation that will never be destroyed, and an inheritance that will never fade out. You take those things, end quote. I'm not going to blame anything else I see on William Hendrickson, now. <laughs> take those things that are ours in Christ and do the contrast, right? Do the comparison with, with worldly things, um, Yes, our lives in this world matter. Yes, yes, we should be careful and thoughtful about how we live. We should be hard workers. We should provide. But Jesus says worldly mindedness is the problem. When you become focused on prosperity and when you neglect eternal things that matter, you know that they've become the idol that Jesus was warning us about all this time. I don't know if you have crossed that line in your own life where you can tell that you have been ensnared by worldliness. Let me suggest this. Ask Jesus to search your heart and show you. It's a dangerous prayer, right? When you ask God to, to show you your sin, uh, you know, you pray with the psalmist, search me and try me. Search my heart. Show me, O oh God. What an open prayer that is to pray. What a, what a dangerous prayer that is to pray if you want your life to stay the same and if you want to never change. That is a dangerous prayer to pray. And it is a godly prayer. Now Jesus, Jesus says, live for treasures in heaven. He's telling us what our life should be about. But here's what Jesus does here towards the end in verses 22 to 24. He, he concludes this teaching with a discussion of single-mindedness. Um, the word I use in the outline is dedication. Choose your word. But listen to what he says again. He says, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <coughs> Uh, I was thinking of when I was in college, I had two jobs. One was working at Target overnight stocking shelves, and I never slept. And then the other job was working at Chipotle, and they gave me a free meal every night. And I loved that master, and I did not care so much for my Target master. (laughs) So I just wanted to work at Chipotle uh, the whole time, but apparently they don't stay open until 6 a.m., so uh, (laughs) Target it was. I know very well, I think most of you, if you've ever had two jobs at once, you've had the one that you love going to, and then you have the other that you can't stand, and you hope that you can come to an end very soon. Maybe you've got two jobs right now. Maybe you can relate to that very well. Jesus relates. (laughs) He says everybody knows that's the way people are. You choose the one master that you love. He says you can't serve God and money. By the way, originally when I looked at this passage, I was going to do Chapter, verses 22 to 24 separately as a a separate sermon. But when you get to the end, you realize that when he's talking about the light of the eye, he actually is adding on to what he said before about worldliness. And then you see how he wraps it up at the end. He says, you have to choose your master. He's making a point here. He says, we have to decide you cannot have both. Now, here's the thing. When you look at a passage like this, where Jesus is giving us a choice between two things I can always imagine a listener saying to Jesus, you know, I can love God and I can have money and I can love money, right? I can have it all. This is so American, right? We can have it all. We can figure out a way. We can walk the line. We can, we can do it. And I can have it all. I can be about God in my spiritual life and I can be about stuff in my everyday life, Right? I can, I can break my existence up into all these different pieces and be all about materialism over here. I can love my house. I can love my car. I can love my vacation. I can go on my adventures. I can love my stuff. And I can also make sure I go to church and I do all these spiritual activities as well. I can have all the masters. Now, I know Jesus is talking to a first century audience, but doesn't it feel so modern? <laughs> I can have it all and still be good, right? I can have it all and find a way to live with these things. And nothing has to give, no compromise necessary. I don't have to change. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't. He says, no, you will pick a favorite. You will find one of these things. You will become devoted to it. You will, you will grind your teeth at how the other one is holding you back. That's what you will do. Don't fool yourself. You won't be the exception. You won't be the one person that learns to thread the needle. See, Jesus knows human nature better than you and and better than me. He knows all of us inside and out. He knew every person who would ever read this text. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to have it all. You have to decide. Will these things serve you or will you serve these things? So Jesus is saying, would you see them go if I called you to release them? Would you walk away from this stuff if I made you choose between them right now? I, I remember you see this in practice. I saw it in practice at my last church. There was a member of the church. She was fired from a greeting card company um, that she worked for because she'd worked there for years. And, and she had refused to put all the greeting cards out. Um, some of the greeting cards celebrated a gay wedding and her conscience wouldn't allow her to put them out on the store shelves. Now, maybe you think that you could do it. Maybe you think that you could sort of in your mind, justify it and put them out. But for her, she couldn't do it because to do it was gonna to be to violate her conscience. She couldn't bear it. She told her, her employer, please find some sort of, uh, some other person that could do it or find some other way to do it. I just can't be the one to put these out. And she was, she was fired. And you didn't hear about it because it didn't become a federal case. It didn't go to the Supreme Court. She just looked for another job. And there may be things that you are asked to do in this life that pit the things in your life against the approval of God, right? So you will you'll have some moment in your life probably, this is an antagonistic culture, you will probably find yourself in a situation where you are made to choose between treasures on earth And treasures in heaven. And that is the moment when a choice needs to be made. Where you will find out who you serve. You may not know right now. You may convince yourself you serve God. And that you love treasures in heaven. But it also may be you've not yet been put to the test. And I suspect you will have to choose one day. Between your conscience and earthly treasure. Where you're pressed to choose Jesus is challenging you today. When you are pressed to choose Will you choose heavenly treasure? Think of it like this. Think of what Christ has given us, right? Think of that list of those blessings I mentioned a moment ago, right? The treasure we already have, the down payment of, all the good things we have in Jesus. If I were to ask you, can you improve on that? Can you, can you add to that list anything that doesn't already come from God, anything that's already not yours in Jesus? I want to suggest this. It is not too late for you to surrender to Christ. It's not too late for you to repent of your sins, to receive and rest in Jesus. He will take you. He will make you his child. And when you do that, you get all of those great blessings that can't be destroyed, that I already mentioned, a kingdom that can't be shaken, an inheritance that can't be taken, uh, uh, a hope that can't be lost if you trust in Jesus, those things are all yours and you can't do better than that. And the world can't do better than that either. And that is because you were made to know God and the world can only offer you cheap, fleeting substitutes. So don't listen to the lies of this world. Don't listen to the lies of your own heart even. Listen to God. He made you. He created you. He designed you. In Jesus, you will have everything that matters most. So here's what I want you to do this week. Look at your possessions as exactly what they are. Temporary gifts that are what we're meant to enjoy without loving. We're meant to enjoy them without loving them. Jesus is pressing us to decide, will we choose God or will we choose the cheap substitutes? We cannot serve both. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help because these are hard things for us. These are hard things for us to be confronted about, especially in a a wealthy society like ours. Would you protect us from the danger of loving things? Protect us from the danger of neglecting those eternal matters that you have set before us as your people. Help us not to fall into the trap of thinking that we can faithfully serve you and wealth. Instead, help us to call these things what they are. Help us to enjoy them for what they are. But protect us from letting them gain mastery over us or or over our hearts. Make us always willing to hold on to your gifts loosely and with wisdom. Make us single-minded in our devotion to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.